Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 82. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. And we're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's movie and pop culture blind spots and sharing our must-see movies and guilty pleasures from the past. We bring them to the future right. or to the present. Or to the present. It's time travel. Yes. Each episode, one of us is in the driver's seat. But that, does, that doesn't work. Especially not for the first film. Um. Yeah, yeah, So each episode, one of us gets to be the chooser and the other person is the choosee. No, the other person watches mm. what has been selected and we unpack it all together here for you. Yes. It was my turn. You chose. You I chose. chose. You, you have chosen. I was the chosen one. Yes. And I chose... The Three Colors Trilogy. He couldn't choose one movie. He just he had to choose three. Yes. Actually, this is a first for our podcast. I chose three films. I chose, chose The Three Colors Trilogy by Krzysztof Kieslowski, produced in 1993 and 94, or released in 1993 mm-hmm. and 94, and it was a co-production French-Polish-Swiss. French French-Polish-Swiss. French-Polish and it consists of the films Blue. 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 Starring Juliette Binoche. White. Blanc. I know Julie Delpy's in it, but I do not have handy what the name of Carol Carol is. Yes. Actually, his... No, I don't. I have many, many notes here. (laughs) Anyway, the third film in the trilogy is Red. Red. Starring Irene Jacob and Jean-Louis Trintignant, a veteran of our podcast because we talked about The Conformist. That's right. He was not on the podcast, just to clarify. Yeah. But you should listen anyway. <laughs> um, so that's what I have chosen. Yes. You have. Somehow we watched them all. We watched them all three consecutive days. Yeah. Another first. I've never seen the trilogy that close together. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You previously so, you had to wait six months between each exactly. one. Exactly. So I think our game plan will be, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about you know, set up the trilogy. Yeah. And then uh, spend, you know, 10 or 15 minutes on each movie just so we make sure we cover them cover all. Them. And then wrap up and make connections. Okay. So, I remember when these films came out. It seems to me that they always existed. They, I mean, I was 12 when they came out. So, that's why I didn't see them. Because... They have always existed since you were They probably 12. didn't play in Lubbock, probably. Or if they did, it would have been, like, one weekend at one theater. And, you know, it wasn't really on my radar. But, like, I remember these posters for, like, ever. They were always up. I think, like... It must have been a big deal because I remember them. I remember the posters for from I forever think ago. The posters were so kind of iconic of like '90s art films yeah. that you probably would have seen them in the lobbies of mm-hmm. like landmark theaters or like they probably lingered for a while. Like, yeah, you know, think great things. Well, they were a here. big deal in the '90s. Apparently, like <clears throat> it kind of broke into like mainstream. You know, it was sort of like. I guess, from what I've read, like, the height of, like, sort of the indie boom in the 90s, and this was, like, the big thing that, like, broke through, and... Your reading may have told you more yeah. about that than I know, even though yeah. I lived through it, because yeah, yeah. I was seeing that kind of movie, I sought out that kind of movie, anyway. 
Well, apparently it became like the thing to see and talk about at dinner parties and like... Oh, I never experienced... Yeah, I don't know that I've ever like, talked about these movies with anybody. Yeah, so apparently really? it was like a big... You know, like everyone's playing Trivial Pursuit and talking about the Three Colors trilogy oh, or something like that. I actually don't go to dinner parties, so there Okay, you go. yeah, there's there, yeah. there's that. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I, and then, like, I guess because, you know, when I started seeing movies, like, people weren't in the, like, remembering the 90s fondly era yet. You know, I think we're just now <clears throat> in the remembering the 90s fondly era, yeah. you know, so, um... <laughs> I guess my, I just never, you know, went back to see what, what that was all about, I guess, you know, so. I can say for sure that I saw Blue when I lived in London. Mm -hmm. That was the first one released. I don't think I saw White and Red. They were released slightly later in early 94. Mm. And even though technically they might have been released when I was still living in London, um, I don't think I caught up with them until I got back to San Diego. Mm. Um, so this is just after film school for me and my six months of like, hey, what's happening in the world? Like, you know, London thing. And uh, I went to the London Film Festival. That has nothing to do with this. No. But I was already <laughs> like trying. I was I went to the movies yeah. multiple times per week. This was a high point for me. Yeah. At least I really responded to Blue. It came out around the same time as Jane Campion's The Piano, like concurrently. Like I remember the, the trailers and the films were playing probably in the same cinema. Loved them both. So I want to, I guess, lay out a challenge for us as we're going through these. I don't want like to spoil it at the beginning, but as I was reading a bunch of different articles about the trilogy... What I discovered is, like, everybody has a different one that's their favorite. Okay. Which I think is interesting. <clears throat> and okay. and um, that they mean very different things to different people. So, like, as we're talking about each of the films, maybe at the end we'll just have okay. a thing where we you say... You may have to ask the questions yeah. that will tease this out for yeah. me. Because I don't want to just blurt something before yeah. we've gotten to that point. <laughs> Um, but why did I choose this for the yeah. podcast? Um, yeah, so I was, what, 22 years old, totally into world cinema, lived in London, saw this. I don't know. It always made an impact on me. I've always really appreciated, loved and appreciated Kieslowski, even though I haven't seen all of his work. I've seen some of... so. That's my way of saying that I never quite finished the Decalogue. <laughs> it's 10 films. So he does this kind of thing where he makes a series and they're linked somehow by some kind of tenuous theme yeah. or something like that. So the film, I've seen about six of the Decalogue, I think. <laughs> it's been like a decade I've long. I've seen the last 10 minutes of the one with the guy who dies. It's a short by... film about killing. Yeah, yeah that it's one. Thou Shalt Not Kill. Or, <laughs> That's you know, I think it's called a short film about killing. Um so he dies at the end. Stop. <laughs> I th it's literally what the movie's about, so yeah. no spoilers with the Ten Commandments or anything. Um, so my first Kieslowski film was The Double Life of Veronique. Yes, it was J.P. Gorin, my amazing French film professor, new wave filmmaker, who I always talk about, who I think that was another one from that class. That, mm. th this legendary class 
we, we're going to end up reviewing everything that he showed us That's in that right. class. Because we've already done The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Because I didn't take a French film He introduced class. me to Adam McGoyan, but we chose Exotica. He showed an earlier one, Family Viewing. Or Canadian. He introduced <laughs> me to Jane Campion with mm. An Angel at My Table. And or New Zealandish. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> Kieslowski is dope. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and then a years ago, um, the Film Spotting podcast did one of their marathons where they, I think they covered, they chose like five or six uh, Kieslowski films. And through that, I went back into his catalog and saw an early film I really loved called Camera Buff, one of his first films. Um, I just like, really love the poetry and humanity of his movies and the pacing of them and the kinds of stories he tells and I don't think you had ever seen a Kieslowski movie nope. and I've been looking for an opportunity and trying to puzzle out how to do it and which film to try and like at various points so this is like three years in the making in my brain yeah. right we're heading into year three of this podcast right yeah, or yeah. is it the end of year three I don't even know we're on episode 82 this is our first Kieslowski yes. exploration and so for a, a, a while I thought you know, maybe I'll choose blue or maybe I'll choose red and we'll just do that. And then here we are just at the end. I don't end, think you could do that. At the end of our winter vacation, um, I what I always wanted to do was to find the time to view and do a podcast on the trilogy. And you were into it. I think yeah. it's because you were also studying French at the same time and we're yes. looking for more opportunities. excuses. I am studying French. You're... You were looking for excuses to see films in French. Je, je today. So white doesn't really satisfy Le that. Français. Okay, <laughs> because it's in Polish primarily, but the other two films are in French. Yes, and uh, there you go. And then you know, I'm just selfishly, I've never seen them all of a piece like that. I've never gotten to watch them like three segments of a longer movie. I've never seen them that close together. Yeah. I think I saw them very far apart. And even though I've owned this DVD for five or ten years, I'd never watched them that close together. Mm. So it was going back to see something that I remembered being pretty great. And uh, should we, like, set up just, like, what Kieslowski is doing? I mean, with the, the colors and the... Uh, <laughs> well, so that, that was interesting is... So, you know, the colors of the flag of France, of the French, flag, of the yeah. French flag, are, I guess, sort of outwardly expressed as the themes of the films. Although, in in the many articles that I read on this, there's some discussion as to whether that actually works as a frame and. And then apparently Kieslowski made some sort of joke with the press at one I've point got the about quote. I've got yeah, the quote. yeah you should <laughs> so he said yeah so okay so the the, the films it doesn't tell a single story yeah. it's a trilogy of di three different stories that roughly correspond to the colors of the French yeah. flag and to the um, the themes of the revolution liberté égalité and fraternité and he said. The words, liberty, egalité, fraternity, are French because the money to produce the film was French. Yeah. <laughs> and if the money had been from a different nationality, we would have titled the films differently. <laughs> or they might have even had a different cultural connotation. But the films would probably have been the same. Yeah. So I love that <laughs> yeah. because um, I think he's doing 
what like I often do when I'm starting a story or, you know, yeah. you, you, you set a parameter for yourself or you yeah. have a prompt and you, and you, and you run with constraints. it. Constraints. Constraints. Yeah. And so, you know, this is the man who like made 10 films around, like loosely in, inspired by, not even inspired by, just with that same conceit yeah. of a film for each of the 10 commandments. But, you know, it's funny, I was rereading some of Roger Ebert's oh, writings about too. Kieslowski, and he's like, yeah, but the connections are like, it's not even clear that it, each film corresponds to a single commandment, and what order are they in, and the, the connections are very loose, and sometimes ironic, and um, mm-hmm. there's so much room there that really, it's just a frame that he puts there, and then he makes the film he's going to make. That's right. Right? Yeah. So. So, Blue. So Blue is our first film. Blue is the first film. First film that came out uh, stars Juliette Binoche, who I love. Very tempted to get a bob haircut now. <laughs> After <laughs> this watching is that. This classic Juliette Binoche bob haircut movie. I So I want to say all the films are like like very watchable. Like from a from you know, someone who who loves independent film but still finds some independent film to be slow. Yeah, these are not that. They are so full of stuff, and I don't know. They're they're very watchable films. You know, I was a little concerned watching. You know, what is it? Seven hours or six hours of. Or no, what the, where are they like an hour and a half each? They're very two? short. Yeah, they're, they're all, not very long. Each one is just ninety minutes or so. But the, they they all tell a very compact, interesting story. Um, and so blue is the first one. Um, it's a pretty you know straightforward thing. Uh, Juliette Binoche is in a car accident with her husband and her daughter. Um, her husband and her daughter die, and so she's left to sort of pick up the pieces or not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then her husband was a famous composer who was writing a, you know, symphony for the unification of Europe. Yeah. You know, as Europe is preparing to unify into the European Union. Yeah, this is about 93. So, um, and so, so the side character is, you know, her husband's like partner in music is going to pick up the symphony and finish it. And then there's some question as to whether she was actually the person who was writing her husband's music or not. Yeah, so there's you know? this character of Olivier who who they want to finish the, yeah. the symphony. And she also turns to Olivier in the yeah. aftermath and uh, invites him over to sleep with her. Yeah. <laughs> but doesn't really... To see if... She can feel things again, or something. I don't something. think at that point she can really <laughs> she feel can really anything, feel things. but it's the first thing she tries. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, I, this film, I really loved. I, the imagery, the photography, the freaking crystal lamp, <laughs> um, which I'm still obsessed with. Um, I just really... I just really dug it. I just really liked, like, understood how this character was feeling and why she was reacting the way that she was and why she sold everything that she, or she wanted to sell everything from her past life, you know, and just live in Paris, not connected to anyone, you know, so. 
Yeah, so you alluded to this when you started to say she like puts her life back together, but actually what she does is she deconstructs mm-hmm. everything. She kind of burns it all down. Yeah. She sells the house that she lived in with, with her, her family. family. Um, she severs all ties with people she knows, except there's this connection with Olivier, the, mm-hmm. the husband's uh, colleague. And um, she tries to become completely anonymous, but books a flat on her own in Paris, doesn't want to run into anybody, doesn't want to correspond with anybody, certainly doesn't want to be interviewed by the annoying uh, news woman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the journalist who's, who pops up now and then trying to get interviews with her, get her to admit on the record that perhaps she composed her husband's music. By the way, I think that's a question that's never really... No, resolved. I don't think it's ever resolved. And I actually really like that it's not resolved. Yeah. I think it's clear that she has musical knowledge. It's absolutely And maybe clear. even musical genius, but... Um. Excuse me while I knock our microphone over. <laughs> but, yeah, it's never clear whether she actually wrote her husband's music, that, or the music that he was... You yeah. know, credited with at least, you know, so. Can we run a little bit with what you're saying about the beauty and the visual poetry of the movie yeah. and stuff? Because I don't think we said that the films correspond to the colors of the French flag, but that each film also has the color motif. Yeah. In, built in, into, into the film. The yeah. aesthetic of the film. Yeah. This one does it, I think, the most successfully uh, for me. I, well, yeah, I probably because it. Ties into the 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 theme, the sorrow, the grief. Truthfully, I just like the color blue. Yeah, well, I like the color blue too. So there's that 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 you know, like our first. I mean, they've introduced blue. I think like in the opening scene before the car accident, like they have a scene where her daughter is like flapping like a wrapper. It ends up being like a lollipop wrapper out the car window, and it's like a pale blue color. Um, and then, you know, the you know, it's interesting. I just want to mention the car accident is absolutely terrifying. It looks like a real car accident. <laughs> but the moments that lead <laughs> yeah. up to it are this very almost it's like a visual poem or something yeah, it is. because you get these little fragmented images that it's it looks like a short film mm. or something like that or a poem like it's the it's the the ride in the car up to that moment, as, yeah. as you said, is like the the girl playing with the blue cellophane wrapper of yeah. the lollipop and her face seen through the back of the windscreen, yeah. staring out at the passing lights in the darkness, I think. And are they go? do they go through a tunnel? I don't remember. I'm just getting that, glimpses of this. Well, and then there's if, the boy standing by the side the of the road. the boy who's sitting, yeah, with his skateboard on the side of the road. And then I think you... you Hear it's a it. film, genuinely. Yeah. You hear it off camera, and then you cut to him running out, and you see it, the car crash yeah. into a tree. That's and that's terrifying. It's a pretty terrifying scream too at the at the. Th- so it's 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 a really effective, you know, start to the film. It kind of pulls you in immediately. And then um, there's that weird, unsettling image where you cut to her recovery, but you yeah. don't know where you're totally disoriented, except you get that extreme close up of like her eye, the I haze believe. of bandages around her eye and her eyelashes and mm-hmm. the uh, wheeze of her breath mm-hmm. and the eyelashes kind of move and the band aid moves a little bit. It's this very weird, extreme well, close up. 
experience is it's such a close-up you can see the reflection of the doctor who's giving her the news Mm -hmm. about her family in her eye that's Mm -hmm. that's that's our perception as we're you know getting that news yeah which is um cool (laughs) i liked it um yeah (laughs) so i this is i love the way that this film communicates and uses music i mean Mm. the music in the story is this question of will they finish the comp her husband's composition will she be involved in it and there this seems to be like the one thing one of not the one thing because there's another very important thing but it's a thing it's unfinished business is this getting pulled back into the score Mm. that she knows how to complete or that she and the film depicts her haunted by the music in some yeah. ways. At least I'm interpreting some of the story as from her perspective with the phrases and passages of the of the composition as it almost running through her head sometimes. Yeah, and um, the film does this really cool thing every once in a while where during a moment I think with her talking to Olivier or something where it just kind of fades to black all of a sudden yeah. and there's like a, a rest in the music and then or or you hear like a strain of the music and then it comes back up and it doesn't cut to a different yeah. scene it's almost like this moment is too painful or this moment is something or other that we just have to take it down and then come back in again. I wish I could remember what the moments were in the story. I feel like it's every time she's forced to remember something about her past life. That may be. And if, it's if like I had just time a moment again, of like where it's like blackout and then yeah. it comes back to, you know, um, it's pretty, it's really effective, I think. But I think it's interesting because, like, she tries to, like, withdraw entirely, but she keeps getting, you know, pulled into different interactions. Well, let's talk about some of those interactions. There's a couple other women in the film, right? So there is, um, what is her name? There's her neighbor, Lucille. Is that what it is? Yes. I can't read my own notes without my glasses. (laughs) Yeah, her neighbor, (laughs) Lucille. Played by Charlotte Verry, who actually I, I realized was in that Romare movie that we went to see at the uh, AFS. Yeah. The one about the woman in the winter with her child fathered by the boy that she met on holiday a long time. Whatever. That yeah. that, that was her. Um, so she plays like a sex worker who, yes. who lives in the building. Yes. What is their... Let's look at this relationship. Um, what is this connection between them? Well, I think that the people in the building want... Since she brings men home in the evening, they want the sex worker out of their apartment complex or their apartment building. Um, But uh, um, Julie refuses to sign the... So they needed everyone in the building to sign the paper that says you need to leave. Mm -hmm. And she refuses to sign it. So Lucille gets to stay because Julie decided not to... Not to sign the paperwork, so... And then they they kind of, I don't know, develop some sort of odd friendship, sort of, in a way. They have some kind of connection. I don't know what it is, except that they completely are strangers to each other, but they... It 
their pasts don't matter to each other. They mm-hmm. kind of are, are able to have sort of a present tense, just yeah. relationship of equals in a way or something. And, yeah. and uh, like Lucille turns to her in the middle of the night when she's really distraught at the strip club where she works because yeah. she found her, her father, father shows up in the front row yeah. and she just absolutely could not handle that. And, um, Julie, the Juliet Binoche character comes just to sit with her and witness that and be yeah. with her. And then there's this business with, um, the, the mice. Oh yeah. There's <laughs> like a fam, there's a, a, a mouse. Is it a rat or a mouse? I, I think never... it's, a, they, she said it was a mouse. It did not look like a mouse to me. It was a really big mouse. If it so was I think a it's a rat that, that has a litter. Uh-huh. In in her little apartment, and it's just closet, totally yeah. freaking her out. It's making chittering noises. It's like right out there. Yeah, and she doesn't know what to do, and <laughs> she ends up borrowing some random neighbor's cat. Yeah, and just <laughs> puts it in the house, and then shuts the door and leaves. Yeah, it's Lucille that she goes to like she like oh she comes to her when she's yeah. swimming and she says yeah. have you been crying she's like no i'm swimming my face is wet but she has been crying yeah and she says yeah i don't want to go back there and yeah. lucille is the one who offers to go back to the house to take clean care it up of, yeah clean up everything i don't know what it what it is but this yeah. is like her only friend yeah i don't think that the relationship with olivier is really gonna go yeah. anywhere no well and it's interesting because because that actually leads her to her, that connection with the seal is what leads her to her next sort of connection, which is while she's visiting Lucille at the strip club, she sees a television program where Olivier is talking about the unfinished symphony for the unification of Europe. And, um, and they show on, on this thing, some photos that were among her husband's, like leftover papers, and one of them is a photo of her husband with with the woman that she doesn't recognize. Um, so through that, she's able to find out that her husband was having an affair, um, and she finds this woman that her husband had an affair with. And I mean, she makes this. She ends up making this extraordinary gesture. Yeah, it turns out she's pregnant. She finds out that the woman is pregnant with, with her, her husband, dead husband's child. child. Yeah. And, and she ends up signing over the deed to the house, right? Yeah, and she had, they were trying to sell... I guess they have an estate outside of Paris. Um, it's a big, like, yeah. rural, like, chateau or something like that. Um, and so she halts the sale on it in order to give it to this woman that was connected with So what with does her this husband. mean? What is her emotional journey? Obviously, yeah. this is a really... <laughs> amazing portrait of grief and the aftermath of just something absolutely devastating and for a while she's kind of numb yeah and then she starts to like build a new life yeah and then then you have to look back at the fact that this is the the liberty liberté film yeah so is this about who she is on her own yeah in and this cha- this weird chance to start over yeah. to create something new and also learning that the life she had might not have been all that she thought seeing as her husband had a mistress and yeah. stuff like that <laughs> like she's learning i don't know that's that's interesting to me i was thinking about that because i know that in you know french society that 
you know, open relationships are, and different types of relationships are more common than they have been in the United States or other more conservative countries, maybe like Poland, you know, so to me, like, I don't, I don't know if that's like a comment on, on anything. I mean, like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think about that because like, you know, that's, that's sort of like, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a view as we have as Americans of, of European Moors or something yeah. like that, but that relationships outside of a marriage are more accepted or more less frowned upon yeah. than they are here. You know, although, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, views are changing all over so, about that sort of thing. So what gets her to the point yeah. where she can get over the hor- the shock of learning of her husband's clearly she's yeah. upset by it at first. Yeah. To the gesture of, you know, providing for her husband's child and this woman. Like, because she's tried to go completely anonymous. She's tried to burn everything up and build it up again. She's getting pulled back into the score, the symphony. Partly because... I don't think she, it's just the she world. She can't porn. trust Olivia to do it, is what I think. But <laughs> to do it the yeah, way that there's a that, little Mozart Salieri yeah, thing yeah, going on, that, where he's like, "I could do this, and it would be mine." Yeah, and or, it would be somewhat clumsy, or you know, you know what he wanted to do. Yeah. you can do this. Yeah. So, I don't. I I don't know. I mean, other than. I mean, like, there's that scene at the chateau where, you know, the mistress is saying to her, you know, your husband said that you were a a good person, a, a compassionate person, you know, and so. I think she goes completely numb and null and kind of is on point zero for a while. Yeah. And like by the end of the movie, she's... <laughs> coming back and starting to reestablish reestablish connection like maybe if it's, even this just yeah. louise she's starting to create the yeah. working on the completing the symphony she does something for somebody else that's very kind yeah. so it's again coming outside of herself again and venturing into relationships with humans i don't know if that's reading too much into it no, I but think you're right. but there's there's a definite kind of journey arc or journey there that and and Kieslowski has this way of ending films before you get to what would normally be like a huge payoff in a Hollywood movie he kind of takes you up to a point where they're starting to have a second chance or they're starting to reach the other side but it always feels a little early to me for some reason but not in terms of the film itself I like the way he tells the story I don't know what if it's just my particular way of enjoying things, but I like that they leave it open when people make the choice to leave things open. Cause then I get to, to think about how it, how things could go. I don't know. No, so I think yeah, that might've been you're not crazy yeah. because I like that too, because mm-hmm. an open story is one that continues to live Yeah, and you get to, you get to fill in the pieces. You get to wonder you get to decide. You get yeah. to, you get to be frustrated about, you know, or not frustrated, but it's it's open. Yeah. 
We should probably move on to yeah, white. Yeah, that's blue, so white. White. So that came out in early 94, and it stars Zygniew, Zygniew, I don't know how to pronounce Polish names, Zamachowski and Julie Delpy. It takes place mostly in Poland. Yes. Do you want to give us a line or two about what it's about? Oh, God. Um, so we have a man who's being divorced, a Polish man, doesn't speak much French. His in- name is Carol Carroll. Carol Carroll. He lives there in Paris. Yeah. Um, his wife, Julie Depley, is divorcing him because she, their marriage has never been consummated. Um, apparently they got along just fine before they got married, but after they got married, he just is not able to deliver the goods. So, um, she divorces him against his will. Um, she leaves a giant suitcase for him in the parking lot of the courthouse and then drives off. Um, and he's like pretty much penniless. He doesn't have a passport. He has no money. Um... <laughs> she takes everything. <laughs> yeah, she takes everything. She takes his salon. He's a hairstylist. Um, and but, leaves him basically homeless in the subway, in the metro. Yeah. And she um, pretends to burn the salon and calls the police and blames it on him. So now the police are also looking for him, so he can't leave. <laughs> she completely destroys him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, so he is playing music on like gum wrappers in the in the metro in the metro and um meets another polish guy um who has a really strange proposition yeah, for him he offers he offers him money in order to kill and someone passage back to poland and passage back yeah. to poland in order to kill someone um someone who no longer wants to and live he's, he says you know i don't want to kill anyone but i'll take you up on your weird offer to get me back to Poland. At that point, I think he'll, he's thinking he'll get to Poland and whatever, double talk his way out yeah. or whatever. So the way they, since he doesn't have a passport and he's wanted by the Paris police, the way they devise to get him back to Poland is to put him in his giant suitcase. This is strangely one of my favorite things yeah, about the movie. Drill a hole in it and then For send air. him through baggage. Um. <laughs> hey, you know, it's just a four hour flight. Right? That's right. It's completely rational. So, but things don't quite work out the way they expected, since apparently in Poland, um, there are a lot of people stealing baggage um, in order to get whatever valuables might be out of the baggage. So instead of arriving safely with his friend in Poland, um, he gets like dragged out to the countryside and beaten up by a bunch of thieves who thought they were going to steal something valuable from a suitcase and instead found a guy. And then they beat the <laughs> shit out of him, leave him there. But he's back. Yes, he's in his back. homeland. And so he- apparently, according to to several things I read, like the biggest laugh um, in an independent theater ever is the scene where he, um, you know, has just been beaten up. Just got out of the suitcase, just been beaten up by thieves. Um, and um, he says something to the effect of home at last in this like vast white wasteland of, po- of Poland out in the middle of nowhere, I guess, yeah. outside of Warsaw. So um, apparently that that was a big laugh. The color motif yeah. is pretty easy in this film. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> Poland as we see it is completely pretty much white, white. icy, <laughs> it's winter. snowy, overcast desaturated yeah like the whole bit yeah yeah so then begins the process of him uh he moves in with his brother at 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 the their salon the family salon yeah 
um, and uh, somehow ends up um, building himself back up again. Yeah. So he's he starts work. He starts out getting some money from his hairstyling and realizes that's not earning him money fast enough. I think throughout the movie, the thread is is that he wants to win his wife back. Yeah, he his- wants to prove himself. <clears throat> she thought he was a loser. She actually took every opportunity yeah. to make him more of a loser by yeah. destroying him. But he's kind of like, I'm back on my home turf. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to build myself back up again. And then, may- then maybe she'll love me. Yeah, so he's already an award-winning hairstylist. Like, very high demand, but there's not much money. There's not money in hairstyling, so he starts working for a small time gangster. (laughs) And he also takes up his friend, his Polish friend, Mikolai. They're reunited. Mikolai's happy to see that he did not die on a plane in baggage and is lost forever. They're reunited. And he takes him up on his job to uh, get rid of somebody. Yeah, so that, interestingly, that's probably my favorite scene in this film. Is the scene where, like, he's like, okay, I'm meeting the guy that I'm going to kill, like, in some, like, subway, half-built subway or something like that in outside yeah, of Warsaw. Yeah, it's actually kind of parallel because they met in a subway and yeah. they're again in some sort of so, train um, station. So he gets there and it turns out that the guy that wants to be killed is Mikolai. Yeah. And so, you know, it's this, you know, are you sure? And then he shoots him. And the guy falls over, and then it turns out that it's a blank. And Carol's like, you know, it was a blank. Are you sure? And he's like, and then the no, I'm says, not, no, I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> and I'm going to pay you the money anyway yeah. because you've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really liked that scene. I, I just, to me, that was like... What a what a nice thing to do for someone, you know, to yeah. to give them what they think they want, and then they give it. They get a chance to find out if it's what they really wanted, after all. He's a good friend. Yeah, he's, he's a kind man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sort and, of. And the, well, <laughs> sort of. Yes. <laughs> like not at all in some yeah. cases. But the money gives him the opportunity to undercut uh, the the weird land dealings going on and he yeah. like how he makes a name for himself. Yeah, so he he starts doing and and like this is another thing that's like a commentary on which is like a theme on how Europe is changing in the in the 90s. So Poland has just come out of I mean like you know communist Soviet rule you know like things are changing their economy is changing they don't join the european union for another 10 years or so but like poland is becoming more part of europe and like with that there's a lot of corruption and weird stuff going on and underhanded things i think it comes up several times during the movie like you can buy anything and they bring it up when you're buying a gun but also later when they buy a corpse they're able to buy a corpse (laughs) yes (laughs) um so, so I think that it's it's like he's taking advantage of this sort of new economic openness that Poland is going through um, at the time, you know. And like I, I think that you know we get a better understanding of the sort of workings of that because Kieslowski is Polish and understands more about it than I feel like we get a better sense of 
what Poland was Polish like at the time circa than we do like what it was like in Paris yeah. or Geneva the for the next movie. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was really interesting about like how things were. There changing. seems to be a lot more sociological going on yeah, about yeah. like life in Poland than than you're meant to get out of the other films about Paris or Geneva. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so eventually like the big plot that he has and like that's the thing is like you think that he just wants to get his wife back so he's gonna fake his death and then write his will so that she gets his money so she will come to his funeral and like I thought he was doing that just to make her feel bad and then like he was gonna reveal that he was actually alive um which is sort of what happens, but then, like, there's a twist at the end where he actually just wanted to frame her for his murder. <laughs> so, I think I've probably said yeah. this at some other point in the in, in our podcast, but I like a good comeuppance yeah, in a movie. Yeah. And um, this has a doozy of that, yeah, of, yeah. A, of an ending. Yeah. <laughs> Where the tables are completely turned. And yeah. so if you want to go back to the the themes, you know, the French themes, this is equality or egalite. Yeah. It's kind of like he got knocked down to point zero, yeah. like completely destroyed. And then the equality is the point where he builds himself back up and completely destroys Dominique. Okay, but like, so... <laughs> I, I mean, like, clearly he's playing with these, like, how terrible it is for this man to be sexually humiliated and then forced to be penniless in this in the subways of Paris. But, you know, through his ability to make connections and everything, he's able to get out of that and get back to... And I think at the end we end up with Julie Depley in, in jail in Poland. <laughs> so... I don't know how equal that is. He's, he, I think uh, Kieslowski said something about how we don't want to be equal. We want to be more equal. I think he's going for more equal. <laughs> he's more equal in this case, you know. I can destroy you more than you destroyed me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, I, I just don't see how she could get out of that necessarily. You know, she's been... No. One of my... One of the things that bugs me about the yeah. movie... Is that Dominique, the Julie Delpy character, isn't doesn't feel like a character to me. No, she's, she's like not a, a she's not a three dimensional character, and there's no sense of her as a real person. Yeah, I there's no sense of their marriage or no. what brought them to the point, and so you just have to accept the proposition in the beginning because this is what we're given, is that, you know, but how did you get there, like? Yeah. I don't think it's just about him uh, being impotent, impotent or, or not able no. to consummate the marriage. But I don't know what the story is, and I feel like it's being withheld. Yeah. <laughs> be, oh, I kind of wonder if it's like a... I don't know. There's like a Western slash Eastern Europe sort of thing going on, too. Because he's like a... I think they met in Prague or... Somewhere like that. And she, he's like a hair so, hair champion. Hair... When, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they met when he's at the top of his game and he just won this big competition. But then he comes to Paris where I guess the idea is that he's not as successful. He's experiencing a lot more stress competing in yeah. in, a, in a space like 
you know, a very established space. I don't know. It's, I wonder if there is some sort of like. But I think that like Julie Delpy is just kind of presented as like this agent of destruction. She's kind of like petty and like mischievous, the kind of stuff she does, like suddenly deciding to like on the spot, deciding to light the curtains on fire in the salon after they've just made love to, to frame him. Not really, but well, again, (laughs) so, but there's, there's, that's like all she is. Yeah, it's true. There's no development of her character at all, you know, so. So, but, and yet he's completely kind of comes across as a loser, like, yeah. uh, like, um, clingy, yeah. sort of submissive, like, he does not get that he should not be attached to this person. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know. It, I mean, so because you don't have, like, I think he comes across more as a real character, but yeah. she's more of a plot device. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and, and this is, it's a different kind of film. So it's weird that it's kind of wedged in the middle of these two dramas. Cause this one feels more like a dark comedy to me in a way, which yeah, yeah. is not in it itself. Definitely... It's not a complaint. No, but it, to me, it doesn't have the emotional gravitas or the the weight of of blue or red. Yeah, um, and it it almost feels it feels like in some ways like a fable or like a, a like a joke, like a long drawn out joke that has kind of a dark punchline at the end. Yeah, you know. Well, I I actually kind of wonder if it's like a precursor to sort of our our modern sort of obsession with an anti-hero sort of thing, you know. This is before The Sopranos, but I mean, I feel like this character is like a character like if you just read by his actions mm-hmm. that you would think he was a villain, you know, yeah. like Don Draper, or, you know. You know that but but because you get the benefit of seeing him and seeing how he makes his choices and why he makes those decisions that he seems more relatable, I guess. You well, know? let's look at it another way. Before I said they're equal because they destroy each other yeah. equally or something yeah. like that. But And I also made them slip, I think, of saying he's a kind man when what I really meant is to agree with you that that was an act of kindness for Mikulai yeah. or whatever his friend's name is. But maybe the equality here and I'm not, we shouldn't take it too yeah. literally i think is that he goes from being fawning and clingy and obsessed with her and like you know kind of a worm and destroyed and like nothing to becoming as egocentric and narcissistic as maybe she is to the point yeah. where he can commit this active yeah. vengeance or or find this find the strength like yeah. to once he builds himself up to be in a power position yeah. again from point of no power. I don't know, but there's something going on there. Well, the other interesting thing that comes up. So there's a scene where I think he's talking to Mikolai about what happened with his ex-wife. And then he goes to show him because apparently he's at the cafe across from where she lives or something like that. But also on that same building is a giant poster of Le Mepris of contempt. Yeah. 
Um, so there's some sort of like direct lines between drawn between Julie Depley, Delpy, Delpy, thank you, and and Bridget Bardot yeah. in, in 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 contempt in contempt, um, which is another film where I don't think we get as much view of what's happening inside of of the woman. We only get the view of of. From it's a shame we've never yeah. done that on the podcast. Yeah. We watched it outside, <laughs> but I've always wanted to talk about that one. Yeah, um, I th- I think that they're. I mean, because we don't even get to see the moment that things change. Like when we come in, things have already reached yeah. the point where she's divorcing him. But um, but I mean the the comparison suggests that there may be going on more going on than we're able to see because of our our perspective. Yeah. So. All we get is that she's lost respect for him. Yeah. Her, she's completely changed. Yeah. She's, she has a new lover. Yeah. I think we see. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because there's a mirroring shot at the end where he comes to visit her when she's locked up in the Polish jail. So he's like in the first scene down on the street looking up at her window. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, her, all he can see is her light going off and on. And then... The last shot is same. He's he's on the you know on the grounds of the prison where but she's, she's locked up. But she's in prison now. Yeah, and and she's he's looking up at the light in her window because he knows. I guess he's paid someone off to know which window she's in or something like that. So well, what if he's just imprisoned her to finally have her? Yeah, well, like, that's now I think I'm it's like now I pr- now I've boxed. Now you're stuck here. She's the princess in the tower. Yeah. Yeah. Now now yeah. she can't leave. Yeah. He has the upper hand. Yeah. Like he got her. Well, where, and essentially, hit, by admitting his existence, he could probably free her at any time, you know, too. So there's... Hey, that's a good one. Yeah, that's... that's So anyway, that's that's white. We have to move on to red. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so red. Red. Red stars uh, Irene Jacob. I don't know how to pronounce her name either. My French pronunciation is Jacob. rusty. And Jean-Louis Trentignon, who was the star of The Conformist, which we talked about several episodes ago or maybe last year sometime yeah and uh this is another more of a straight drama than than white (laughs) yeah um so we have uh her name is valentine yeah valentine she's a model and um she lives in an apartment by herself over a cafe cafe joseph or cafe chez joseph um (laughs) It's important to know the name of the cafe. It's Joseph's place. Well, it is. It comes up a lot. It's always it's so it mm-hmm. it has a red awning, which is like one of the things that turn. So this movie is very red. There's mm-hmm. lots of red in this. Um, I, I, like down to well, the, blue is very blue. So. Yeah, yeah. But to me, red was more red than any of the other ones. That's interesting because I thought blue was very very blue, and I thought it had the most steeped in that color. I don't know. I feel like... Remember the glass beads that well, you were obsessed with? Well, I think if you're with? in Valentine, Valentine's room, like, everything in there is red. And I just... And, like, the 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 student that we follow along, he's got a red Jeep. Mm-hmm. She has a red car. You and know? visually, one of the most important sequences or visual motifs is the is the uh, photo shoot she does for the bubblegum yeah. ad with the draped, billowing, huge bright startling red fabric behind yeah. her as she's blowing a bubble and then she's told to look as sad as possible to look yeah. very sad to look devastated to look sad 
turn in profile, looks sad with billowing red behind her. And they tell her it's going to be blown up huge. She's going to see herself around Paris. And sure enough, throughout the movie, you see that giant draped, huge billboard um, from that photo shoot. So Valentin um, has a boyfriend who's like super controlling, but he is traveling around Europe all the time. We don't see the boyfriend. He's a voice on a phone. Yeah, but he's, you know, controlling and awful. Um, But um, she's driving around town and accidentally runs into a dog. Um, And she goes, and oddly, instead of taking the vet, the dog to the vet immediately must not have been that badly injured. She takes it back to the owner of the dog. She finds it on the collar. And, um, you know, meets this guy um, who's a former judge. And he spends his time listening to his neighbor's phone conversations using Mm -hmm. some sort of radio technology. He has some kind of radio setup, (laughs) listens to it on a big speaker system in his house, makes notes, listens. He doesn't watch TV, apparently. He doesn't own a TV, we later learn. Yeah. This is what he does. That's what he likes to do with his time. Um, Dog is fine. Ends up being fine. Rita. um, Rita's pregnant. She's going to have puppies. Important, important stuff. But when Valentine discovers that this guy is listening to his neighbors, she overhears several conversations um, and she sort of develops an interest in the people that he's surveying and and what he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, well, she's disgusted and yeah. horrified and, yeah. and wants to alert. She people wants to, that this is going on. She wants to tell the guy across the street. So she runs over to his house to tell him. And then she sees that his, well, his wife is very nice and welcomes him, her in. And her husband's on the phone He's upstairs. He's still on the phone and... upstairs. And their, like, tween daughter, 11, 12-year-old daughter is listening in on their dad's phone call. So... Now the daughter knows that her dad is having an affair. But Um, all of a sudden these people are real to her. Yeah. And it's not just an outrage disconnected on a telephone. Yeah. Objectively. And And so she goes goes back. She does not tell them. And then she finds out that another one of his neighbors um, is like some sort of drug lord for Geneva. And it turns out her brother is an addict. Mm-hmm. And so she, I, my favorite funny scene is when like, um, he just gives her the guy's phone number that he seems to have for some reason. Yeah, he said, what would you, what would you yeah. say if I told you that I suspect that he can, that that man over there, he now has a private phone. Yeah. He's got a private cordless phone. It's not on my wavelength or anything. I can't hear him. He just got this recently, his new phone. But what would you think if I told you he controls the heroin trade into and out of Geneva? So she, you know, he writes down the phone number. She calls him and just says, you deserve to die. <laughs> and then you can see the guy through the window, like, reacting oddly. In his backyard. Yeah, so that like was, he hangs up that his was phone a funny, runs inside. funny thing for me. Um, um, and so, like, throughout the movie, they sort of, like, develop this relationship where she's interested in him, but she's also disgusted by his, you know, eavesdropping on people. And in the meantime, one of the persons that he is eavesdropping on is a young woman who runs a personalized weather phone service. 
So, like, you can call and say, I'm traveling to... I'm traveling to Spain this week. Can you tell me whether it's going to be great, you know, what it's going to be like when I... And this woman is dating a law student... um, Who lives, lives like, around the corner from Valentine. He literally lives across the street from Valentine. Yeah. So, coincidence. Yes. So I, I guess like throughout the, this this one I don't know seemed more complex than yeah. than the other ones. There's a lot more sort of moving pieces going on because we're sort of following the secondary story. We well, have a parallel story yeah. with the the student, the law student, and his girlfriend. Yeah. Without clear for mm-hmm. a while, there's not clear connections other than you you do quickly work out that he's one of that they are one of the parties being listened yeah. to. Well, on, and on, like by the judge. early on, like our first introduction to this guy is that he's like, so Valentine just drove by in her car, um, and he's crossing the the road, mm-hmm. um, and he drops his book, and one of his law books that he's studying for his exams, and it falls open to a certain page, and then he starts reading that page, that comes up later, mm-hmm. you know, in in her interactions with. Um, with the retired judge um yeah so there's it's a lot more complicated so the judge is bitter yeah lonely (coughs) doesn't think much of the people he's listening to somehow justifies it in his mind by saying that he gets to know more about the actions and the real lives of these people and what they're doing and committing than he ever could have as a judge. Now yeah. he finally has an open view, so to speak, yeah. of of what's of everything. And so he really kind of is like God or something like yeah. that. Like observing the silly, puny humans mm-hmm. and all of... But not exactly for entertainment, yeah. I would say, but... somehow he has this strange, detached, curious, and I would, and I think addictive addiction to it, because there's this theme of addiction too. Yeah. But that's how he justifies it to himself. But they establish a connection. Yeah. Again, this is another movie that has a connection, (laughs) like two strangers, you know, this kind of odd circumstance of her running down his dog and, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with the dog anymore. And the more she prods and probes at this indecent behavior, this, yeah. you know, it's unethical. And he's a judge. And it... He... It breaks or cracks through something to him yeah. so that her her curiosity in him as a human, as a person, and why he's doing this and how he got this way makes him kind of go back and start to share something about who he is yeah. and how he loved and lost somebody many years ago and never found anyone else. And it's, this is the fraternité, the, yeah. the friendship. There's that beautiful scene. Uh, she invites sequence. him to one of her fashion shows and she doesn't think he came, I think. And then she's like, looking for him as she's on the yeah, catwalk too. And she never sees him because he apparently used to come to the theater and had like a secret spot that he liked to stand in to watch. So like after she's like 
done and everything, like, she comes out and she sees him. And then they have this sort of, like, long, intense discussion where he tells his story and she tells her story about her brother and her mom and, you know, his addiction and, you know, and he talks about this lost love that he have and and how he had the, you know, you know, the man who stole her from him, uh, was later brought up in his court, and that was the last case that he tried. He found him guilty of, you know, building this faulty open market that killed several people. Um, but he retired after that because he just couldn't, I guess, deal with... Separate himself personally from yeah. his cases. So, um, but yeah, anyway, so there's this, like, wonderful sort of, like, moment of connection that they're able to have that, you know, through you know, them sharing their stories. And and there's a feeling like, you know, that she could have been for him what the woman wasn't if if circumstances had been different, if time had been different, you know, that that this could have been more than just like a well a platonic connection. We were, I know, you know we both read Roger Ebert's review um yeah. in you know, just as we yeah. were reading around about the movie. And he calls this um an anti romance, I yeah. think. Because there is there is a genuine hint or allusion to the possibility of love between them in some yeah. way, except for that gap of, of 40, years 40 or 50 yeah. years yeah. in their ages. <laughs> but there's a true meeting of the mind and heart in some way yeah. for however brief. And it awakens a humanity in the judge. Mm-hmm. He looks forward to seeing her. He does some of the things he does so that she will come back. Well, and to see I think him. that it gives her the confidence to do things that she wouldn't have done to break off contact with this asshole boyfriend, you know, that, you know, to to I think she's she's going to England to do something career related. She has a she yeah, has she, a, has, she the, has a runway show. Yeah, or, she or has shoot. the courage to leave because she's afraid to leave because her brother is experiencing these addiction issues and she's afraid that you know, some harm is going to come to her mother while she's gone, but she has the confidence to go and live her life because of this sort of interaction, I think, you know. Well, I understood. I think her mother, does. They, her mother doesn't live in Britain, does she? There's something, Maybe she's, she's going to go visit her mother on I the way. I think she said her mother lives near Calais where the ferry yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what the connection is. But so Valentine is the kind of person who does make personal relationships with people. And when she connects with someone, she checks on them. Yeah. Like she she's the kind of person who follows up that like you become a part of her when yeah. when you get to know her. And so her persistence in there's something about him. Yeah. That she wants to reach or know more about or connect with or like she starts to care about him in spite of herself yeah and all of this is so subtly done i mean we're making it sound much more than like a hollywood movie where there's a grand connection and like big gestures and like it's or some kind of love story between the years and it's not like that at all all of these things are so delicate and so yeah again it's that kind of thing where kieslowski Gives you just a little bit, but it's so much is there. Yeah. 
So should we talk a few minutes? I don't know if there's more to say. There's probably plenty more to say about yeah. this, but did you want to talk a little bit well, about, more about should... connections between the three films? Well, I, I think we should talk about the ending of this film, which is the ending of the trilogy as well. Yeah, do it. Um, which I have mixed feelings about, and apparently other people do too. So the ending of this film, I mean, like, I guess like he felt the need to tie everything together and the trilogy together in some way. But the way he does it is that, uh, you know, we have Valentine going over to England on a ferry, and it turns out the student that she's sort of had these parallel connections with is also on the same ferry. Um, and then we get a scene of the judge, like, watching TV. He got a TV in order to watch her... Her, her show. Her show in, in England. It's her TV. And I think she said... And he sees news coverage of a ferry disaster in which all but seven people died on the ferry disaster. Um, and then there's a shot of the seven people who survived. And it's Olivier and Julie from Blue. Um, it's Carol and... Julie Delpy. Julie Del- Delpy from... White. White. And it's uh, Valentine and the student from, mm-hmm. from, and I don't know who the seventh person was. Who was the seventh person? I don't remember. I don't, I mean, anyway. <laughs> They're all paraded for us in the newscast. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's kind of a weird way to do it. I mean, uh, so, I think people really liked it when it first came so out. So here's what I want to say about that. Little... I would say don't put much weight no, in no, that. No, no, no. I really feel like it's definitely not... I mean, I, I haven't gone back or to read mm-hmm. interviews with Kieslowski or anything, but to me, it seems very clearly to be an afterthought. It yeah. seems like a credit sequence kind of gimmick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something that's integral to the any of the three stories. No. It doesn't make any narrative sense no. for any of the three stories. It's just like, it's almost as if the money people said tie it in a neat little bow yeah. just to connect the dots at the very ending. Because it li- doesn't make any literal narrative sense. Yeah. It really is kind of, serves the purpose of the uh, the cast coming out and bowing at the end of a stage yeah, yeah, performance. Yeah, exactly. And for yeah. that, it works fine. Yeah. But I don't think you can put any no. narrative No. Well, I wasn't even trying it. to make any sense of it. It just seems a little cliche or... Well, I just you know, think it for, it doesn't affect the movie no, for me or no, the trilogy. No, I but actually I, I, I kind of wish that Red had just ended. And I never remember that, that it's there. It's a yeah. surprise every single time. This yeah. is probably the third time I've made my way through the trilogy, <laughs> yeah. and I always forget. Um, but I will say, I absolutely I don't I don't know if you like this, but I absolutely love and think is brilliant the the shot the last shot of of the film where. It's Valentine, who mm. is actually the hero of yeah. our story, on in the rescue footage being yeah. broadcast on TV, and it ends up with her turning in profile uh, with the red behind her, There's and like she's a... absolutely distraught in real life because she's just survived this tragic accident. Yeah. Her hair is wet, and it's freaking dead ringer for the billboard that yeah. she did earlier, where she's just pretending to that look was sad. Cool. So, I just yeah. thought that. That that's the kind of thing that makes me excited. Yeah. It's just like a visual <laughs> echo like that. Yeah. And I think Ebert talks about the way that Kieslowski plays with time and mm. and things that don't quite make sense or things that reverberate or echo. And the other big echo in this movie is 
that, and you started to talk yeah. about it, is that the judge, um, that the judge had the same thing happen when he was a young law student, yeah, yeah. where he dropped the book from actually from inside the theater where yeah. uh, where they were for uh, many years later for Valentine's performance, and it opened on a, on the page that ended up having the question that was on his his it's exam. Final, yeah. It's the same thing that happens with the young law student in this and Ebert talks about how it's almost like this weird time echo where Olivier sort of is the judge as yeah. young and we're even kind of so I I thought the movie was going to tie itself up with Olivier and Valentine were going to meet yeah. finally right not because, Olivier the student sorry Auguste yeah, is Auguste, the name of the student yeah. Olivia's the from the blue story. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, you have his life playing out right across the street and their lives never intersect except for the fact that the judge is listening to his girlfriend's conversations. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're seeing him at all to they're on the same ferry and you see them getting on the same ferry and you're kind of like, oh, this is this weird circumstance where she's going to end up with him who's kind of a surrogate younger version of the judge or yeah. something. And maybe he's a better guy than the shitty guy that she's actually, yeah. who's never around and always phoning her and making excuses. Yeah. Who are you with? Exactly. <laughs> so which film what did you, you were going to ask questions to uh, tease out something. So about. it's interesting because the first two articles that I read, I can't remember what, one of them was Roger Ebert's review. Roger Ebert's favorite movie is Red. Mm-hmm. The second one that I read, who I don't remember who it was. Was it The Guardian, the Guardian review you talked about? Their review, and White was their favorite. Mm-hmm. And Blue is my favorite. Still, even after we've talked about it. I just, I love the imagery. I love the powerful story of the grief. I don't know. Um, I, I, don't know. I guess grief has been a major, you know, player in my life for some time. <laughs> You know, so I don't, I don't know. I, I, I truly, I, that one just spoke to me. I, I, I appreciate how, like, we were able to tease out more complexity. I want to say that White was my least favorite the first time, you know, just my initial reaction. I think it's a lot more interesting than I initially gave it credit for just in this discussion. But, um, yeah. So I'll start with the fact that White has always been my least favorite film. Yeah. I've seen the trilogy three times. I And so it's Kieslowski, so I can't say it's a weak film. No, no. I think it's a good film. It's it's very interesting. I, and I think it does stand up alongside I the other I enjoyed watching it. It was a... They're all compulsively Like, watchable. we could have just seen White yeah. and it would have been interesting. However, it doesn't have the resonance for me. It's not the kind of story that speaks to me as blue and red. And... For my whole life, Blue has always been my yeah. Kieslowski movie because it's yeah. the first one I saw. It's the yeah. one that I lived with the longest before I got to see any of the other <laughs> ones. It had all of that beautiful imagery and poetry. It had the music. My God, do you remember the way that it actually yeah. shows her reading music across the mm-hmm. page? She's reading the score and you, and the camera is gliding along um, in extreme close-up on the notation on the page yeah. and you're hearing the score as it's reaching each note. And I just was like blown away even by <laughs> small details like that. It's interesting to me that, I mean, like that very like close-up, very myopic way 
that he shoots or him mm-hmm. and the the director of photography for yeah. that film. I mean, which probably for all of them, but like I don't I didn't notice that type of photography as much in the other films where there was this mm-hmm. extreme close up on the focus, you know, where we're we're seeing things, you know, I feel so like close up. I it's I think that Blue is the film that we're getting the most filtered through a character's subjectivity yeah. and a character who's in grief. Yeah. So that explains it to me. Blue is also a film about a woman who is fragmented and her life is fragmented. Yeah. And so a lot of things are these very resonant, isolated images like yeah. that. I think that it's just a different style, but it totally works for her experience. The other films don't have that kind of close subjectivity with the character. Yeah. They are more stories... A, a, one step removed, I would say, yeah. just because it's not filtered compl- through the emotions and the eyes yeah. of, of a character like like uh, the Julia Binoche character. But so the last thing I want to say, well, it's not the last thing I want to say necessarily, mm-hmm. but like I think that I'm a little bit more in the red camp this time. Interesting. And it's tough to say because like I've always thought, I think maybe what it is is the experience of seeing them all three together for the first time. Yeah. Some of what I'm getting from Red this time may be the way that it serves as a finale to the whole mm-hmm. sequence. But I think I'm seeing more in it this time than I ever did before. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe it's more... Maybe it may be... Maybe... So I have the experience... This is your first viewing. Yeah. And I had the experience of seeing this probably when I was in my 20s, like early 20s, probably 10 years or so later in my 30s, you know, and now again, you know, maybe maybe it's been a decade or so in between each viewing. Mm -hmm. And um, I was closer to loss and grief, I think, when I saw Blue, and it probably spoke more to me then it still speaks to me i think it's a beautiful film and if i had chosen one movie to do on the podcast if it's like we don't have time to do the trilogy but you have to see the kieslowski i would have chosen blue yeah but red where i am now the the story of these two isolated people making this connection and this relationship there's something about hope that's there and about connection between two people that I need right now or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's the story I need right now that, um, that it meant more to me this time. And I, and I, I hate to, I'm not going to Goodreads rate this as this is a five and that's a four no. or anything. I think just, I feel myself appreciating red more than I ever did. And I actually want to ditch your whole question and not say, which is my favorite. <laughs> well, that's that I, I guess not necessarily my favorite, just the one that I responded to the most. And I kind of wondered if like that would like, yeah, whether it goes with like time of life or how often that you've seen it or just like a different personalities, you know, I mean, like, I I truly enjoy dark comedy. I I I've truly enjoyed white. I really did. It's such a it's, change in tone and and very different weight than, than than the other films. Yeah, but they all had 
I mean, excepting Blue, where there isn't... Well, I mean, maybe that connection that that she has with Lucille, her neighbor, that one scene where there's this sort of, like, where they're able to, like, connect and share something, you know, and and, in white it would be when he decides not to kill his friend. (laughs) Yeah. And then in, in red, that wonderful scene where they're finally able to you know, lay out everything on the table and discuss all of these things that happened to them, you know. I think that there's something going on the red. I can't even, in red, that I can't really articulate. But, like, seeing red, you see the workings of people. Like, almost it puts you in the godlike position that, that the judge wants to be in. But not in a way where you're... You don't, you're detached and you don't care about anything, but in a way where you can fondly look at these strange coincidences yeah. and these strange moments of connections and these echoes across time and space and this character who's kind of like that character and these people have this in common and it's just, you know, a, a moment of turning one way instead of another where you don't see that this guy lives across the street or that you know this person from that situation. There's something so... I don't know, true, elegant, interesting about that view of the universe that, yeah. that I don't know. But I i didn't see it like that. I'm just trying to say that now. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's its like uh, a vision of humanity. <laughs> and the blue is a vision of a, of a person and a feeling and an emotion. Did you ever, this is going to seem out of the blue. It's, it's related though. Did you ever read Amsterdam by... Um... Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan. I did, but I read it once 10 or so years ago, and I don't really remember it that well. So it's it's interesting. Like, there are, I think, similarities between that book. And I actually don't know when it came out, whether it was before or after or around the same time. But, like, to me, there's a lot going on that's very similar and... I wouldn't be surprised if one was influencing the other or... As Red or as the trilogy? The trilogy as a whole, because Amsterdam is a story of two friends that grow apart due to their fascination with this one woman who's dead now. Um, And, like, one of them is a composer who's writing... it It must have come out after this, so maybe it was influenced by this. But he's writing the Symphony for the Millennium. That sounds kind of similar. Yeah, and but um, so like it 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 really explores their friendship and like you know why it's so deep and and the love they had for this woman and then it ends up in them having like this terrible like jealousy for each other that ends up with them mur- essentially murdering each other. At, a, at an event in Amsterdam, which is... So, I mean, like, it has a lot of the same sort of where you're talking about grief and friendship and mm-hmm. connection and then how that can turn sour and you end up in a state where you, like, can't forgive each other and there's revenge and, I don't know, all of those themes just seem like they're... It's 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 a book that I've always really liked. It's one of my favorite of... of of his books, you know. I've always really loved Ian McEwen, and I've yeah. kind of dropped off the last few novels. <laughs> Me too. But um, I have to definitely go back and reread that. I've only read it once. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. But it's it's interesting. I think also that there's this like exploration of like psychology. I mean, like of individual people, but in a sense, it's it's psychology of an individual person, but it's also psychology of like every person, you know. And that, that's one of the things I've always liked about Ian McEwan, and I feel like it's here in these films where we're getting at like the core of what it is to be a human being and to experience loss and to experience humiliation and to experience connection and, and, you know, yeah. And, and yeah, now that you think I'm thinking about it, red is probably the more complex and subtle of, of the, of the, but that doesn't mean it's the one that speaks to you most. No, (laughs) (laughs) I, well, you know, I, I like high contrast photography and, um, Um, I like big, powerful things that make me feel things. I like subtle movies, too, but I I tend to have very um, loud reactions to things. So So that sort of high contrast filmmaking does um, is more satisfying to me, I guess. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. So you don't resent me for uh, three Kieslowski movies uh, in the course of three days? I, I would highly recommend that. That I, I don't think I don't think you should just do one. I think you should see them all together. If they're presented as a trilogy, you should see Well when see they them. came out, we they yeah. they had staggered releases, yeah. I think. So, you know, blue came out and then a, a month or so in white came they were pretty much right on top of each other, but I don't know if they necessarily played at look, the same look time. Look at the depth of what we're able to explore when you see them as three things. And you see them contrasted and contrasted and juxtaposed against each other like to watch blue and then to immediately watch white it's like it's a pretty striking thing it wouldn't be that way if you know it's true (laughs) and you wouldn't get all the easter eggs too right yeah (laughs) like there there are some direct like things yeah there's uh um, when Juliette Binoche sticks her head into the courtroom for a second, yeah. you overhear the shouting of a man in the court who later in white, it turns out to be that's Carol Carroll yeah. shouting. And you see Juliette Binoche in the background stick her head open. Yeah. So the, like they intersect in that way. And we have to give the humanitarian award yeah. to Valentine, who actually helps the old woman try and yes, get... Yes, everybody the, watch the woman put a bottle in the... <laughs> The woman who is in uh, Paris sometimes and in Geneva. Occasionally. At, at the, it's Geneva at the yeah, end, but Geneva. it's Paris earlier. Everybody else ignores, but there's always the recycling bin. Yeah. That's with the, you said, this is a problem of universal design. Yeah, you know, I did say the, that. The that's... hole is too high. There's a hunched over <laughs> old woman. She can't get the bottle through. It's yeah. uh, it, it takes to get too red. To I also it. thought she has osteoporosis, but I didn't say that. So <laughs> okay, well, th- there's another theme we didn't yeah. address. But there are micro fractures that cause that. But type it's of Valentine, thing. the last film, who gives us that final payoff of helping the the woman get the bottle into the recycling bin. Yeah. So, this is our longest podcast ever. Is it? We're at an hour and twenty two minutes, oh, okay. and I think we should call it a day. Okay. So next time we'll do the Decalogue. Okay. No, All ten. No, we won't. We won't. <laughs> thank you for showing me these films. I, Ooh, I, I really, I really enjoyed them. All of them. I mean, like, it's funny, like, after we saw Blue and White, but I just remember thinking, like, wow, these are just really fun, good, watchable films. I mean, like... 
I was a little concerned when when it's like Polish director that I haven't seen before that it's going to be. I didn't make you see yeah. like three Tarkovsky <laughs> films in a row. He's Russian, but I yeah. didn't, we didn't watch have to watch like Solaris and, you know, yeah. Mirror. So and, those long shots where nothing's happening, you know, which I mean. I so can, there's a stereotype of what yeah. like a foreign art film <laughs> yeah. is. And this actually doesn't. No, it's not like that, that at all. all. These are it's, 90 minute movies. They all have very tight plots, really. And there's they're, they're there's about, so much interaction, and yeah, it's so I I truly enjoyed enjoyed them. Well, did you see the note? I think it was an Ebert's thing that Kieslowski announced that he was retiring after mm. he made after he finished Red. Yeah, and he died. He two was fifty two. He died. He two was years basically later. my age. Yeah. And then he he felt like he had said what he needed to say, and yeah. unfortunately, we lost him two years after that. But uh, this is what he was capable of making uh, yeah. when he was 52. Well, and, and like one thing that I saw that like a lot of people haven't seen as much of his work as we've seen other, you know, like mm-hmm. Adard or other major film directors <coughs> um, is because like most of his work is the Decalogue or te- he did some television stuff too. Or Decalogue is Decalogue tele- was for television. Yeah. So, like, there hasn't been as many sort of, like, wide releases of his work. His other biggest film is The Double Life of Veronique, <coughs> which was the film that preceded the trilogy. Yeah. And it also stars uh, the same actress as in Red. Yeah. Um, she's good. So, I think you would actually really, really love The Double Life of Veronique. Okay. Although well, it is a bit more of an art film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's I, I think I've so. shown that I'm not opposed to art films. No, but I'm so- I, Like many people, like, long quiet shots with not much dialogue are not, I mean, not that I don't enjoy them. It's just that they're more of a challenge to watch Mm -hmm. because you have to like, it's, it's better to watch this type of films in the theater where you can tune out all the distractions and focus. Whereas like we watched this like on Saturday morning in our house or well, Friday, Saturday and Sunday morning. And like I was completely drawn in. I didn't I didn't have problems with staying concentrated yeah. or anything like that. I just remember know? Double Life of Veronique leaned a little bit more towards the poetry and mm. the ambiguity. Yeah. But it still was accessible. But at that point in my viewing life, I was I was much more like I'm not sure I understand this, and yeah. like my my rational brain wanted to make sense of it, and it's not necessarily that kind of a movie. I mean, it definitely has a story and characters. Well, it's there it's, are two Veroniques, you know. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's very like strange. the film that I that was like that for me was Mulholland Drive. Like, yeah, you know, because it starts out with a that was my first Lynch too. Yeah. It's oh like, wow. That's you know. a pretty weird first Lynch, I yeah. guess. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I, I still need to see it again. But, like, I remember being very frustrated with it the first time I saw it because I wasn't used to films that where the structure just breaks down entirely, you know. And now I think I could appreciate that a lot more because I appreciate more of film as as abstract art than than I did when I had no exposure to to anything of that nature. So this has been a great discussion, man. Good conversation. All right.
So that's what happens when when uh, I, I choose something that I've really been wanting to do for a long time, <laughs> and we just have never had the opportunity to see all three of them at once. So next trilogy is the works of Polly Shore. No, just no, kidding. Is that your choice? <laughs> Biodome. So son-in-law. You guys can skip the next episode, and I'll choose something good that the, the time after. Just kidding. We're not doing any Polly Shore. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, And we will be back with you with Ashley's next pick sometime in the coming weeks. We have no regular schedule, but it's all good. We'll at least take you on an interesting uh, exploration on an adventure. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.